I am going to miss that video now that this sermon series is over. Ah, I finally acclimated to it so I don't stress out when I see it now. But we've been talking about this, this idea of breathing room for the last several weeks. We've been talking about it in the context of our schedules in uh, our time. Last week we talked about it in terms of our finances. And this week, week we're talking about relational breathing room, having breathing room in our relationships. Um, and this can be a sort of a, an awkward conversation to have. Uh, and I think especially for men, men don't particularly, you know, like to be told about relationships, right? They just, you know, as a man, you're like, you know what? I got this covered, dude. I actually don't need you to tell me. Um, so, so I thought I would start off with just a a little joke, um, to try to just break the ice with you. And, um, there was a, there was a guy that was at the Super Bowl. It was a few years ago. He's at the Super Bowl and he was sitting at the Super Bowl right at the 50 yard line. And there was an empty seat next to him. And these seats are incredibly expensive. I don't know if you saw this, but like this year was like $9,000 for some of the tickets at the Super Bowl. This guy's sitting at the Super Bowl. He's sitting by himself. And there were a couple guys behind him. And they're like, you know, I wonder why that guy's sitting by himself. You know, these tickets are so expensive. Who would bail on a ticket to the Super Bowl? So finally, one guy leans down and he says, hey, I just, I just was wondering, you know, none of our business, but... Um, you couldn't find anybody to come to the Super Bowl with you? You know, like it looks like the seat is empty. And the man says, well, actually, you know, um, my wife and I uh, have gone to many Super Bowls together, and, and she was supposed to be at the Super Bowl with me, um, but she passed away, and so, you know, she can't be here. The man said, oh, wow, I am really sorry to hear that. And he sat back, and he kind of thought a little bit more, and he leaned back, and he said, again, I don't mean to bug you here, but... Um, you couldn't find it like a friend or a, or a relative or a cousin or somebody to come to the Super Bowl with you? And the guy said, oh, no, they, uh, they couldn't. They're all at the funeral. So, um, <laughs> all right. That broke the ice. That was good. <laughs> so when it comes to relationships, I think that worked. I really do. I feel... Um, Guys, we don't, we don't like to be wrong, right, in a relationship. We don't like to be wrong. That's one of the things uh, that, you know, right out of the gate when we're talking about relationships. Um, we don't like to be told what to do. Guys, you agree with me on that one? We just, we don't like to be told what to do. We don't, we don't like other men telling us how to run our relationships, right? We sit there and we go, you know what, who is this guy? Uh, and we want our wives or girlfriends to think that all of the good ideas are ours. That's just categorically what we are like. Um, but today we're going to talk to you just a little bit about what the Bible says about relationships because the Bible is packed with information about relationships and how we are to interact with one another. In fact, the overwhelming majority of the writings in the Bible re- deal with relationships. The Ten Commandments are all about relationships. The, four, or the first four are about our relationship, our vertical relationship with God. The lo, la, last six are about how we relate to other people. Uh, Jesus' big commandment, the one, the big one, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's all about relationships. And so, much of the, so many of the letters that are written to Christians... Uh, from Paul and other apostles, are written about relationships. How do we interact with each other? 
And the Bible has a ton to say about building relational breathing room into your life. Now, if you haven't been coming, uh, first of all, you can go and listen to the sermons online. But second of all, I'll recap and tell you our definition of breathing room for the purpose of this series is this. Breathing room is that space between your current location and your total capacity. So your, your, your location and the cushion between that and your, your limitations, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about breathing room. Last week, I talked about financial breathing room, and we, you know, we showed you a chart, like a little graph, and it had income, and then it had um, expense, and then if your income is higher than your expense, that space in between is called breathing room. Well, you can take that same sort of analogy, that same visual, and apply that to your relational breathing room. So here is a, a graph of what it looks like and when, when you think of your relationship. Each and every single one of us have a relational bank account with the people with whom we are in relationship, okay? And we make deposits into that account, and we make withdrawals from that account. Deposits are like... You know, you buy something nice for your spouse or you say something nice to your spouse. Uh, and, and, and for those of you that are single in the congregation or divorced, um, there's going to be really good stuff for you in this sermon as well. And then next week we launch a whole series on relationships and there's going to be um, so, some of the some of the material is going to be directed strictly at uh, singles. Um, this is mostly at people in relationships, but I think it's applicable to everybody. So deposits are like you say something nice to your spouse. You do something nice. You spend time with him or her. Um, you give them a hug. Uh, you know, things that, that uh, sort of increase the trust, increase the joy, increase the, the pleasure of the relationship. Withdrawals are things that you do that take away the trust, that take away the joy, that take away the confidence in the relationship. Um, snarky comments, eye rolling, you know, bickering, uh, disloyalty, um, you know, there are a lot of them. Uh, and these, these, dis- these diminish our bank account. And the space between those is the breathing room, right? That's the, that's the trust, the confidence, the joy. And by the way, the scripture does not contemplate that we just get by in our relationships. The scripture contemplates that we, we experience uh, relationships in God that are full of joy and pleasure. Um, the Bible says, you know, take pleasure in the wife of your youth. Uh, let in, 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 Exultant. I mean, there's this sort of soaring language about how we are to engage with and what is available to us in relationships. Now, when our withdrawals increase and our deposits don't increase, we end up with something like this, right? This is when the couple is just like, there's just not a lot of breathing room in the relationship. There's not a lot of space. There's not a lot of confidence. There's not a lot of trust. There's not a lot of joy, right? Because we've been withdrawing and withdrawing, and we haven't been depositing and depositing. Now, if we take this too far, if we go too far with this, we end up upside down, where our withdrawals are higher than our deposits. And this is an emotionally bankrupt situation. This is an emotionally bankrupt relationship. And, you know, when you hear somebody say, like, well, we just f- fell out of love, you know, or, well, you know, the, the, the passion died, or whatever, what that really means is that the withdrawals became greater than the deposits, 
and the account went bankrupt and was closed, right? And that is something that nobody goes into a relationship wanting or hoping. When you walk down the aisle, you know, you don't say, I do until the withdrawals exceed the deposits, at which time I'm going to close my account and go to another bank. I mean, we don't, that's not, that's not what we, that's what, not what we do. So it's not that we want this to happen. It's just that it happens in our lives uh, without us knowing it. Because unlike finances, we can't pull up an account statement, right? In our, if, if we go to the bank, we can look at our account statement and say, you're overdrawn, right? Or you're getting close. Or, you know what, you've got a lot of breathing room. We, don't, we can't do that in our relationships. So how do we know if our relationships are edging towards bankruptcy? There are a few ways. One, one is that our negative interactions are nearly as frequent as our positive interactions. We get into a relationship where it's like, wow, we haven't really had very many positive interactions lately. There's just been a lot of negative interactions in the relationship. I don't know if you've ever been around couples that are going through that or you've been that couple, um, but it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's awkward. It's toxic, right? You know, I, I remember going on a road trip one time with a couple. This is when I was single, so I, had, I didn't even understand anything about relationships, but they were, they were right there on the edge, and, it, and like, I'm in the back seat, and it was, very, it was hot in that car because everything that somebody said, somebody would offer the counter. You know, like, why don't we pull off at this gas station? Well, why don't we just go up, you know, five more miles? And then they would have a discussion about that. And then they wanted me to weigh in. And I'm like, I'm asleep. I'm just going to sleep back here. I don't, want, I, don't want, I don't want to be in that. Negative interactions, you know, if you're experiencing that, then you're not, there's, there's not a lot of breathing room in the relationship. Another one is, and by the way, all these notes are in your um, bulletin. So you can follow along in your bulletin. You can fill in the blanks if you want. Um, Another one is that both parties engage in frequent criticism. Now, criticism is different from a complaint, right? A a complaint is, hey, honey, you know, you said you were going to be home at 6. It's 6.30, and the dinner is burned, and and that really kind of bums me out, right? That's okay. That's a legit complaint, right? A criticism is you don't care about me. You're married to your work. You don't, you know, you don't want to come home on time or, you know, those kind of things where you're directing the attack at the person rather than at the situation. And couples that experience high levels of criticism, that breathing room just gets diminished in their life. Um, Another one is that one or both parties engage in frequent defensiveness. Now, defensiveness is a higher level uh, you know, mechanism in a fight between couples. And let me show you how one goes. I'll give you just an example. See if you can relate to this. And this one's on me, okay? This is, this is, this is about me. Um, one time, this is several, this is uh, 20 years ago. No, I'm just kidding. Um, this was like, you know, maybe a few months ago. Um, I, I was supposed to come home for date night, and I, and, I had, and I had a time that I was supposed to be home for date night. But I got caught up in a meeting, and, you know, things, one thing led to another, you know. And so I came home, and Rebecca was upset because this is our time together, right? And she said, she said to me, hey, you know, you said you were going to be home at this time, but you got home at this time. And, and it bums me out. Totally legit complaint, right? Totally legit. 
The correct response is, I'm sorry, babe. I got caught up in the meeting, and I, I really apologize. I, um, I'll, I'll make it up to you. Right? That would have been a good response. Let me tell you the response I gave. <clears throat> My response was, oh, you're one to complain about being late. How do you think my date night went that night? <laughs> That's defensiveness. Um, don't do that. That's... The fourth one is one or both parties, parties engage in frequent stonewalling. stonewalling. Stonewalling is basically like you're there, but you're not there. Right? Does anybody know Marshawn Lynch, the running back for the Seattle Seahawks? He does not like talking to the media. Right? And, but he gets fined if he doesn't talk to the media. So when now what he does is he stonewalls. So the media comes to him and they say, so Marshawn, um, how was the defense out there? And he'll just say a word or a phrase that has nothing to do with what they asked. Like in one interview, he just said, yeah, 12 times in a row. They're like, hey, how, how's the defense out there, Marshawn? Yeah. What song did you listen to on the way to the game? Yeah. And he did that 12 times in a row. And finally they're like, okay, we're going to just move on down. Um, Guys, we are particularly good and skilled at the stonewalling game. Uh, and in relationships, when there's, when there's struggle, when there's criticism, when there's, we sort of, we have a tendency to stonewall and block our couple out. So if you are experiencing this kind of stuff in your relationship, that's an indication of a lack of breathing room. That, that's an indication of a low level of relational currency in the relationship. But... When we invite God into our relationships, our relationships, by definition, expand in peace, in harmony, in love, in goodness, in joy, because we have invited the author of all of those qualities into our relationship. And the Bible teaches us a lot about how we do that. Now, if you are here today and you say, Okay, here we go. Here comes the Bible stuff, right? I'm not a Bible guy. I'm a, I'm a science guy, right? Then I, I'm a science guy too. And I would recommend that you just try out what the Bible teaches. It's a very venerable text, even if you don't believe it's the Word of God. And I believe it's the Word of God. But even if you don't, why don't you try out what the Scripture teaches about relationships and see if there isn't perhaps something in there that relates to your relationship. And maybe, if it does, then maybe you should explore a little bit more whether or not this might, in fact, be the Word of God for your life. Because the Bible, the Bible gives us, before, you know, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the Bible gave us a, a law about breathing room. To the very early uh, uh, Israelites, it gave a relational breathing room law. Let me read it to you. In Deuteronomy, it said, If a man recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year, he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. You didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? That was pretty awesome. That's like, mater- that's not maternity leave, that's marital leave. That's like way better than paternity leave. P- paternity leave, you come home and there's a baby and there's diapers and snot and all this kind of loud crying, right? No thanks, right? Let's have the marital, let's have the honeymoon leave. 
The one you, that's because because at the even from the very beginning, God is saying relationships need time. They need breathing room. The principle that he's giving us here is that relational breathing room is inherently time intensive. So if you want to develop that relationship, that breathing room in your life, there's got to be some space and some time for you to interact with the one that you love, which is why I went to Home Depot and purchased some locks for our bedroom door because four-year-olds do not understand that parents need time, right? It's time intensive. Um, the Apostle Paul says in one passage, he says, it's, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. A lot of people think that means that, okay, if, if you're passionate, just get married and that'll solve the problem, right? That's not what he's saying, right? He's saying, you know, bring that passion into the relationship. All right, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother sermon that we'll talk about uh, next month. Um, so how do, we, how, do we, how do we start to enact this, right? How do we start to build this breathing room? Uh, principle number two is that relational breathing room begins with mutual submission. Now, what does that mean? So, uh, now, uh, there, there's a lot of discussion about what that means. Mutual submission just means this. I'm here for you, and you're here for me. I'm here to bring happiness and joy into your life, and you're here to bring happiness and joy into my life. I want to defer to you, and you're going to do the same for me. I want to submit my authority, my power, to bringing joy to you, to, 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 to willing your good, and you're doing the same to me. That's what that means. Um, I'll give you another example. I'm using a lot of personal examples today. Um, just because this is like a very personal sort of topic. Uh, last Sunday, last Sunday, there was a, an, an MMA fight last Sunday night. And Sunday nights are times when the family starts to hang out and get together and chill out, right? But Conor McGregor was fighting Dennis Seaver last Sunday. There are about, there are about three people in the congregation who care about what I'm talking about right now. I'm preaching to you, right? Thank you. <laughs> I really wanted to see that fight. I really did. But it's not the night that I'm supposed to go out and do, you know, hang out with my cousin or hang out with friends. So um, I came to my wife and I said, Rebecca, Conor McGregor is fighting Dennis Seaver tonight. And um, I don't know what you were thinking about doing, but I'm wondering if you would mind if I went and, you know, saw that fight with my cousin Daryl and some of his friends. So what I did was I submitted, I submitted the request to my wife, all right? Now, I could have said, just want you to know I'm going to see the fight. She could not have stopped me. I have a car. I'm bigger than her. I could have, I could have left. <laughs> but I mean this when I say this. If she had said, hey, I really don't want you to go out tonight. I just want you to be home. I would have done it. I would have stayed home. I really would have. This is one of those rare moments where I can use an, uh, an example, an illustration where I did the right thing. So I'm going to use it, and I'll probably use it a lot of times over the years. Um, but anyway, so she, her response was this. Oh, yeah, Conor McGregor, that would be great. Have fun. Knock yourself out. Enjoy. Right? Like, okay, she submitted her right to keep me home to me to allow me to go experience some joy. And the fight wasn't that great, so I wish I would have stayed home at the end of the day. But... <laughs> But it was a moment of mutual submission. You might say, well, that was a small thing. It is, but a relationship is made up of millions of small things like that. 
then Paul goes on to give specifics, right? So he says the next line, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And men, all the men are always like, yes, yeah. One thing is that, guys, that scripture is not written to you. How do I know? Because the addressee is in the first word of the sentence, right? Wives. He's writing to wives. He's not writing to husbands, right? And then he goes on to write to the husbands, and he says this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And all the husbands go, oh, that's easy. Love. I can do that. And Paul says, wait a minute. And gave himself up for her. That's how he loved her. He sacrificed everything for her. Husbands, that's the kind of love that I want you to have for your wife. So there's this, there's this submission going on that's you know, interacting between the husband and the wife. It's uh, what a lot of people describe it as is a covenant, not a contract. So in a contract, in marriage, a contract is I want to get the most from you in exchange for the least that I can give to you. Every contract you enter, that's what you should be doing. And if that's not what you're doing, then you should get a good lawyer and help you come up with a good contract. Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. A covenant is, I'm going to give everything to you. 100% of me goes to you. And 100% of you goes to me. There's no like, there's no like, I'm going to keep back this and try to get more from you and extract more from you. That's what a marriage is. It's, it's both parties giving away. So how do we activate this sort of mutual submission? How do we, how do we activate this principle? Um, that brings us to the third point, which is that relational breathing room requires love-soaked service. Now, what does that mean? The ancient Greek writers use this word agape. Some of you have seen this word. You've probably read about this word. You know about this word. The word agape didn't have a really well-defined meaning uh, in the ancient Greek writers, among the ancient Greek writers. Um, The Christians grabbed this word and just filled it with meaning. And it becomes one of the most prevalent words in the New Testament because it was used in the Gospels and it's used in the Epistles and it's used everywhere. And what they... What they sort of carved, the the meaning that they carved into this word is this. Agape is that condition of being. Ortberg calls it, John Ortberg calls it a condition of being. It It is the love of God that is from God that that pours into us and then it pours out of us to others. And here's the, the reality about that love. That love is not contingent upon the condition of the recipient. Okay? So the recipient is, you know, if you, if you ever met somebody, you go, it's hard to love that person, right? Well, then that's not agape that you're talking about. That's a different, that's a different kind of love. Because agape love is not contingent upon the condition of the recipient. It's the, a love that has come from God into you, and it's a love that pours out of you towards others. It's a hard concept for us to get our heads around because we use love in so many different ways, right? We say... Uh, I love this weather. You know, I love my mom. I love peanut butter. You know, I, 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 you know, I love school. And, you know, those are all very different emotions, presumably. Um, but, but, you know, agape is not like all of that. 
agape is like this, this love that comes from God and pours out into us and, and, uh, and pours out of us into others. Look at what um, Paul writes here in Galatians. He says, serve one another humbly in agape. So you're, you're sort of soaked in this love, and out of this, you, you serve others humbly, right? And it's out of this abundance of God love in you that you serve others. Um, and then he said, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And a lot of times we say, well, what, how can we do that? How can we love our neighbor as ourselves? Part of what that means, and especially in relationships, is understanding how the other person perceives or receives love. Because you may be trying to express love, and the other person may not receive love in the way that you're expressing it, and so there's a disconnect, right? They don't even know they're being loved. Um, we're going to talk in this series coming up. Um, this guy, Gary Chapman, wrote a book, and you're probably familiar with it, The Five Love Languages. Uh, and, it's, and it's all about how people receive love. And some people receive love through words of affirmation. So I may come up to somebody and go, hey, you're doing an awesome job. I think you're doing great, right? And for one person, man, that just fills them up with joy. They think, oh, wow. That's great. Another person might be like, words are cheap, dude. You know, where's my gift? You know? So, like, you know, everybody experiences love differently. Gifts is, is, is one of the love languages. Words of affirmation. Uh, time, you know, time together. Physical affection, you know, patting somebody on the back. Um, acts of service. Yeah, that's mine, actually. Mine is acts of service. So, if Rebecca makes me an omelet, I'm just like, I'm floating the rest of the day. I'm just like, she loves me. Um, so we all have this. So in a relationship, it's incumbent upon us, if we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves, to understand how they receive love so that we can express love in a way that they receive it. So let me ask you this, couples. When is the last time that you worked to discover what your spouse's love language is? Do you know what it is? And how often do you try to express your love in a language that they understand? Go Seahawks. All right. Um, right, We had to get serious, you know, and it gets heavy. Um, Number three is that relational breathing room requires active listening. Uh, Charles Swindoll, who is a writer and a pastor, and some of you have probably heard of him, tells about this period in his life where his, he's just busy. I mean, he's just like cranking and he's, it's all ministry stuff. So it's all God stuff. It's all, he's got good reasons for it, but he's distracted and he's grumpy and he's mean and he's snapping at his wife and he's blowing off his kids and he's just going through this bad, bad time. And one of his daughters, Colleen, comes up to him and she says, daddy, I want to tell you something, something that happened at school that was really important. She wanted to tell him, I want to tell you something. And he's like, okay, great. You know, tell me. Uh, And she's like, I'll just tell you real quick. And when she said, I'll just tell you real quick, then he sort of, it registered with him, like, oh, man, I'm just being a jerk, you know, I'm, like, not paying attention. So he stopped, and he said, okay, wait, you don't have to tell me real quick, quickly. You can just tell me really slowly. And his little daughter said, okay, then you need to listen really slowly, right? Because she's saying, look, I'm not, you're, dis- you're running around, you're distracted, you're not really listening to me. 
you know, I'm looking at you, I'm looking at you in the eyes and I'm telling you, and I know your ears are picking it up, but I don't know if it's registering, right? Um, active listening means we're actually listening, like we're, we're actually hearing, right? And we're hearing with the intent to understand and to empathize, not to rebut, not to retort, not to fix, not to change, but to hear and understand. No elbows flying through the through the congregation. Um, but to, to understand and to empathize. Romans 12 says this. It says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, and live in harmony with one another. Don't be conceited. Isn't that amazing? It says, Rejoice. So, so a lot of times when somebody's trying to communicate with you, especially a spouse, a lot of times it's because they just want to connect with you. They just want to know that you're connected to them. And so when we're listening with the intent of changing, fixing, uh, rebutting, retorting, explaining, then we're not giving them the thing that they really need. We're not either rejoicing, just rejoicing with them or grieving with them, mourning with them. And so the Bible is teaching us if you want that harmony, then rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, listen to try to understand what it is that the person is expressing. Not only the words, but the feeling behind the words. This is a very feeling sermon. Is everybody still doing okay out there? Everybody all right? Feeling good. My wife's feeling good. Um, and then this is the last, the, the last point. Relational breathing room requires perpetual forgiveness. Perpetual forgiveness. Um, there was a, a well-known author and journalist in the 20th century um, named Marganita Lasky, and she was sort of a well-known secular humanist. She was an atheist um, and very outspoken on these issues. But perhaps her most famous quote was given in an interview towards the end of her life, and here's what she said to the interviewer. She said, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. She says, I have nobody to forgive me. Forgiveness is at the root, it is at the core of what it means to be a Christian. Our relationship with God begins with his forgiveness of us. Everything that we are and everything that we do and every way in which we relate to God begins with his forgiveness of us. Colossians, Paul again says, bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. And then he adds this, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So when we're in those situations where there's stress and there's strain and there are grudges and there's anger and there's disconnect, the Bible is calling us to forgive. To forgive in a way that is beyond our own capacity to forgive. It's a forgiveness that comes from God. It's a forgiveness that comes from the forgiveness that we have received. And as we close here today, I want to give you just one application. At the end of sermons, I always like to give like, okay, here's the assignment. Go out and do this, right? Here's the one application. You guys, you may, you may think it's like, eh, whatever, that's cliche. But I want, to, I, w- I want to sincerely urge you to try this. Those of you who are uh, in a relationship, you're married or in a, in a serious relationship, pray together. Pray together. Now, you might think like, wow, I mean, that's not deep. That's not profound. 
But I can tell you, if you have not done this in your relationship, let me just urge you to try it, to pray together with someone. I will tell you that when, when Rebecca and I, this is my wife, by the way, for those of you who don't know her, um, she puts up with so much, so much. <laughs> um, when we first got together, we were trying to work out our relationship. We were trying to figure things out. Uh, it was a struggle. We didn't understand each other. We didn't know each other. I didn't understand her. She didn't understand me. And we, were, we weren't married yet, but we were like sort of moving towards marriage. And we kind of reached this point in our relationship where we just felt like, I mean, is this going to work? Like, is this even going to happen? I don't know. You know, like we love each other, but man, it's just hard. And for the very first time in our relationship, I remember as clear as day, I reached out and took her hand and I said, Rebecca, can we pray together? And I had, I had never, ever done that with anyone that I had ever dated or anything like that. And it was nerve wracking and I was scared to do it. I was, I, I didn't know if she would think that I was being weird or something, you know, like what, you know? And she said, yeah, sure. And we held hands and we invited God into the relationship. And it has transformed the nature of our relationship because now it's not just us. There's somebody bigger involved. And now, you know, it's, it's not just her, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I know who her dad is, right? So out of reverence for him, I'm going to make sure that I'm treating her the best that I can. And I don't mean Philip Radmer. I'm talking about Big Daddy up in the sky. Um, and she does the same. Does it mean that we don't have wrinkles and struggles? No. But there's a, there's a different category of love that happens when you invite God into the relationship. It just does. So here's, here's, here's how to do it. Pray together. Number one, awkward prayer is better than awkward silence. So if you're already experiencing awkward silence, go ahead and do the prayer, okay? If you don't know how to do it, you know, you're with your wife, you know, tonight in bed. Just reach over and take her hand you know, her hand, guys, and just, and just say, and just say, God, I don't know how to do this, but I'm praying to you right now. The end. Amen. Start there, right? It does, you don't have to be elaborate. It doesn't have to be beautiful and flowery. Just pray. An awkward prayer is better than an awkward silence. Number two, pray with each other, not at each other. You know, so if you're already like, oh, we already pray together. My prayer is, Lord, help Mike to be a better husband. He's such a, you know, jerk to our kids. And, you know, no, don't pray at each other. Just pray with each other, right? Lord, help us, strengthen us, encourage us, build us. Help us to understand you. Help us to love each other. And number three is pray in good times and in bad times. So pray when it's good and pray when it's bad. You know, Lord, thank you for this great time in our life right now. Thank you for the experience of having you in our home. Thank you for our home. You know, and then pray in the bad times. Lord, help us work through this. Help us walk through this. Get us through this time. I urge you just to try it. Just to try it. Just to try it this week. That's your assignment. That's your application. Reach out and pray together. Let God into your life and breathe again. Amen. 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 Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for all that you have taught us in this series. 
um, about you and about our relationships, about our finances, about our schedules, about opening up our lives and allowing you in and creating that space where we can truly experience your love and we can share your love with others. Father, we ask today that you help us to take this home with us, that we don't just leave it here in this congregation, Lord, but that we take it home with us and that we live it out day to day, week to week, that we apply it to our lives and that it grows in our hearts, God, so that we can open up our hearts and we can breathe again in the joy of knowing you. Father, we thank you for this. We worship you and praise you. To you be all the honor and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.